Hello and welcome to the History of India podcast. Series 2, Episode 4, Chess and the Emptiness of Pataliputra. Four limbs. That's what ancient Indians called a full army. Four limbs, the elephants, the chariots, the horsemen and the infantry. All in command of the king. It was an army of four limbs that was said to have surrounded Bimbisara's prison way back in one of our very first podcasts. And they've been appearing again and again as we've been talking about ancient Indian history. We'll be meeting four-limbed armies again today. But in fact, almost everyone's met four-limbed armies before, even if they have no interest in the history of ancient India whatsoever. Because they'll know it if they've ever played chess. Think about the chess pieces. You've got the horses. Well, ancient Indians had pieces uh, called the horses too. They were called the ashvas, uh, as in horse, ashvameda, the horse sacrifice that we talked about a few podcasts ago. On our chessboards, we've got pawns. Ancient Indians had them too and called them padati, infantry. Our chessboards have a piece called the rook. Ancient chessboards also had a piece and they called it, well, they called it the rook because rook is a is a Persian word meaning chariot. I guess in India they called it rutta or something like that. We've got the castle, of course. When I was a kid, I used to think that rook was called a rook on a chessboard because of the, the, the birds that would fly around the top of the castle, the rooks. Not so, it's a Persian word. On our chessboards, we have bishops. Ancient Indians, well, ancient Indians didn't have bishops, of course. Instead, they had the elephant, the hati. And of course, both we and ancient Indians have the king. Our modern boards have more recent additions. They have the queen, still called the vizier in Iran, uh, or the general senapati or prime minister in India. Ancient Indians didn't seem to have those pieces, but what's clear is that there are predecessors of chess in ancient India. In fact, there are chess historians. Yes, that's an important job. Chess historians who are having heated debates about who invented chess and when it was invented and where. Some chess historians say that chess was invented in China. Some chess historians say that chess was invented in India. And some chess historians who really like a compromise say that it was invented on the Silk Road between China and India. The current favourite view is that chess was invented in India sometime towards the end of the ancient period. But this new game of chess that emerged, emerged out of a bunch of older games. The chessboard itself is really, really old. About 6th century BC India, the board was there. In fact, the Buddha, who was around at the time, is said to have banned himself from using it. But they didn't use the chessboard to play chess exactly. It was used for something a bit more like Ludo. You kind of race your pieces around the board. But actually, Ludo itself has nicked off yet another ancient Indian board game pretty much directly, but we're getting distracted. After that, uh, that game with the initial chessboard, ancient Indians started to use the chessboard in conjunction with the pieces representing the four limbs of the army, the elephant, the chariot, the horse, the infantry, and of course the king. In fact, one version of uh, chess, of proto-chess, was simply called four limbs, the same word as used for an army. 
another version of uh, proto-chess, these pre-chess games, instead of having two players like our modern chess, actually had four players all on the same chessboard, each with elephant, chariot, horse, infantry and king. This four-player version of proto-chess was called, naturally enough, Four Kings. That's some snappy marketing. The game was played with dice instead of uh, specific rules about how you could move, and the rules are, are mostly lost, but it's still recognisably something like chess. Given a couple of dice, you could play it on a modern chessboard if only you knew exactly how to move the pieces. But enough of chess. Back to our story. We were following throughout this podcast the people of Pataliputra. And the Shunga kings who ruled Pataliputra have just been killed off. If you read pretty much any modern history of India, Pataliputra will scarcely get a mention from this point in time until the start of the Gupta Empire centuries later. Instead, the modern histories of India talk about a bewildering crowd of dynasties, all of whom seem to move around India with dazzling speed and impermanence, clashing into each other, a sort of mosh pit of kings, but with more armies and sacking of cities. But in this podcast, we've decided to follow the people of Pataliputra, to see the world from their point of view. And from that point of view, things are a little bit simpler, and perhaps a little bit bleaker. Because Pataliputra experienced a series of blows, invasions from the west, the south and the east. Actually, let's use our chessboard to keep track of everything that's going on. Imagine we're playing one of those games of four-player proto-chess. So we have a standard chessboard and we've arranged pieces in the four corners. Think of the north corner as Pataliputra and Magda. In the west corner, we have the Greeks. Now the Greeks have already played their moves and they've really damaged Magda's position. Magda is now greatly weakened. But now the players to the south and the east are setting up their pieces, ready to move. They don't really see Pataliputra and Magda as too much of a threat. It's already been damaged by the Greeks. They're more interested in fighting and beating each other, but they're not going to worry if they have to trash Magda and Pataliputra on the way. Well, from Pataliputra's perspective, the strike from the south happens first, hitting at the remains of Magda, destroying the last of their armies. These guys from the south are called the Satavahanas. Uh, you can remember this because from the people of Pataliputra's perspective, S for south, S for Satavahana. So the strike comes from the south first, and then from the west. We've met these guys before. These are the kings of Kalinga. So, West Greeks, South Satavahanas, East Kalingas. We've already dealt with the Greeks in earlier episodes. This episode will take a first look at the Satavahanas from the South and the Kalingas from the East and their invasions of Pataliputra. But actually, we're going to start by taking a look at the rulers of Pataliputra itself. When our story starts, Pataliputra is still ruled by the Shunga dynasty. But the Shunga dynasty is just about to end, and it ends pretty much in exactly the same way as it starts. The Shunga dynasty started when a member of the king's inner circle stabbed him in the back and became 
the first of the Shungas. The Shunga dynasty ended when a member of the king's inner circle stabbed him in the back and made him the last of the Shungas. Or nearly. The member of the inner circle who had the last of the Shungas killed was his Brahmin minister. He was called Vasudeva Kanva. And he founded a new dynasty, the Kanva dynasty. Now he kept the Shungas nominally in power in a corner of the kingdom. But these people in power might have been no more than very distant relatives of the old Shunga kings. And they were probably not allowed to have any real power. They were probably not much more than village elders. The Kanvas ruled Pataliputra and Magda, and everyone knew it. And here the lights of history flicker and go out on the kings of Magda. We know that there were four Kanva kings, and each of them ruled around ten years each. There might just be some coins with their names on it, but we're not sure about that. And I'm not going to bother you with the names themselves, because that's all we know about them. Their names and how long they ruled. The Kanvas were simply too insignificant. The kings of Magda had become too powerless for their memory and their stories to be worth preserving in history. Actually, I just called them the kings of Magda, and that's probably how they saw themselves. But it's a little bit odd to call them that, because for several decades at least, they hadn't ruled from the old capital of Magda, our city, Pataliputra. They hadn't even ruled from the old, old capital of Magda, that fortress city of the hills which had been the capital uh, even before Pataliputra was built, Rajagriha. Instead, they ruled from Vidisha, and Vidisha is a long way to the south, outside the traditional area of Magda. Vidisha was an ancient town, but its history could hardly have been more different than that of Pataliputra. Sure, both Vidisha and Pataliputra are old, both had been around in Ashoka's day. In fact, Ashoka's first wife had been from there, her name was Devi. She was the wild and willful one, descended from the Buddhist tribe and fiercely Buddhist. She was also the daughter of a mere merchant, a merchant from Vidisha, and therefore not a very suitable match for a king. And that picks out an important difference. Pataliputra, the capital, was built initially as a fortress to control the river Ganga and what lay beyond. But Vidisha for a long time had been just a trading town, little more than a, a local trading hub for the Malwa region. It wasn't built to launch great invasions. It wasn't built to control a river. It was built to launch caravans. Presumably, some guilds had based them themselves there too. But as far as we can tell, it was just a trading town. It only became a city of any military strength around the end of the time of the Shungas. Its ramparts were built around the 2nd century BC. So Pataliputra was essentially a military establishment that became a great city. And Vidisha was essentially a merchant town that became a capital. But even ignoring that difference, even ignoring the, the way that must have affected the, the feel of the city, Vidisha must have been a huge downgrade from Pataliputra. Pataliputra had its pillars erected by the craftsmen of Ashoka. And they would have been reminiscent of his great edict pillars with their pristinely realistic stone animals carved at the top. Those pillars were more than 15 metres high and 
constructed out of the finest sleek stone. Well, Phoenicia had its pillars too. There was a donation from an ambassador from the Indo-Greek lands to the west. And it's a lot like Ashoka's pillars. It's inscribed. And at the top is a, is a sculpture, a carving, in this case of the birdman Garuda, the vehicle of Vishnu. But the difference between the pillars of Ashoka and the pillars of Vidisha couldn't have been more marked. The pillars of Ashoka were these clean line things 15 metres high. The pillar of Vidisha is around 6 metres high, less than half the height. Or think about their buildings. Pataliputra had its halls, stacked with cool stone tall pillars, crowned in teak beams. Well, Vidisha had a hall too. In fact, it's near the pillar, the pillar we talked about from the Greek ambassador. It's a temple of Vishnu, and it's a small ellipse, so small that you might be able to touch both sides at once. And the temple itself isn't made out of teak and smooth stone, polished to a fine finish. It's made out of wood and thatch and mud. Now, of course, we've only been comparing two buildings and the two cities, but it gives the picture, I think. Pataliputra had this grandeur, and Vidisha was just a local town. By the way, we'll cover the pillar in Vidisha in a special episode later on in the series. And also, by the way, if you're thinking that, well, right next to Vidisha there's some great grand architecture just a few miles down the road at Sanchi, well then, first of all, you know an awful lot about Indian history and Indian geography. Great. Um, second, we have special reason to believe that the, the Sanchi, the nearby grand structure, wasn't really connected to Vidisha much. And thirdly, we're going to cover this in a special episode dedicated entirely to Sanchi. That was a caveat for those people who know their ancient Indian history very, very well already. Where were we? So the immense grand city of Pataliputra was emptied and replaced as a capital with a far less substantial, far less grand place. And Pataliputra probably was mostly emptied of people. Certainly it was emptied of the great and the good, the king's court. And it just, in history, in Indian history, seems to become an insignificant place, not a major city anymore, even uh, a major city that wasn't a capital. I like to imagine the people of Pataliputra huddled in its corners and watching whilst the great and the good trickle out of their city and head south. And I suppose that if anyone actually huddled in Pataliputra and watched the procession leave, they would probably be thinking in their mind over and over about why this had happened, why this terrible fate had befallen their city. And it really was a terrible fate. When you stop to think about it, the emptying of Pataliputra is almost unprecedented. As far as I know, there's no parallel to it in the modern world. In fact, someone should write a book about abandoned cities. It would be an exciting book, or at least I get excited by it. In case you're thinking of writing the book of abandoned cities, here are some tips. In the modern-day section of the book, probably the biggest city would be a city called Agdam. It's a city in Azerbaijan. It was home to about 40,000 people uh, before it was destroyed in a war with Armenia around 25 years ago. Now it lies entirely empty and deserted. It's pretty awesome. Check it out uh, on Google and see some images. 
your book of abandoned cities should also include some Armenian cities. The great medieval city of Ani, the city of a thousand and one churches, once the capital of an Armenian kingdom, beaten into submission by, by successive invasions from the Byzantines to the Mongols. Now, just a few buildings stand right on the border between Turkey and modern-day Armenia. So, the Book of Abandoned Buildings sounds like a great book, but if a Patali Putra makes it to that book, if it really had been entirely abandoned and never restored, it would have been by far the grandest entry, I think. Neither Ani, nor Agdam, nor any other abandoned city I can think of would hold a ruined candle to Pataliputra. Look, Pataliputra was vastly larger than either Ani or Agdam, and unlike both, it was the grand capital of an empire. So as the people of Pataliputra watched this unprecedented event, this emptying of the capital, watched the great and the good leave their city, what were they thinking? Why did this happen? Well, unfortunately, we can't ask the people of Pataliputra. The ancient texts say almost nothing about Pataliputra at this time. In fact, the people who kept the records probably left Pataliputra and headed south to the new capital, Vidisha, along with the great and the good. So there's just no ancient source saying what the people of Pataliputra were thinking. And, to be honest, modern historians haven't talked much about it either. So we're left to speculate. But we know a lot about Pataliputra at this point, so we can make an educated guess. Pataliputra was built in the olden days as a military fort. A military fort in that battle between the 16 great houses of ancient India, of the 6th century BC. But the 16 great houses are all but gone. And anyway, the walls of Pataliputra are no longer strong enough to keep out the invaders. They're just wood and mud now. So one reason that Pataliputra emptied might have been that the world moved on. Pataliputra was outdated as a military settlement. Well, I don't find this very persuasive. Pataliputra still lay on the banks of the river Ganga, of course, the Ganges. And from there, someone with sufficient military power might control traffic up and down the Ganga, river traffic, and that would get you a really good income from taxing traders. In the 6th century BC, the ancient kings of Magda knew that you had to own not just a stretch of the riverbank, but huge lengths of it in order to properly control the traffic, in order to really gain money from the trade. That's why they invaded downstream, perhaps almost to the ocean. The new kings of Magda, they couldn't do that. They didn't have the military power to hold the riverbanks for any length. So perhaps that's why Pataliputra lost its preeminence. It was a, a weapon only valuable to a king strong enough to wield it, and the new kings of Magda just weren't strong enough to get the money from it. I don't really find this very persuasive either. After all, Pataliputra still sat on a major trade route by land, and it would be enough to make it a sizable and important base for rich merchants. So why was it emptied? Perhaps it was simply that Pataliputra was destroyed by the invasions of the Greeks, or by fire or by flood. There are traces of fire and flood in the archaeology of Pataliputra. Pataliputra might have just been a broken, sacked city. And why not simply rebuild? Well, 
actually that's what's going to happen eventually. But it's going to take centuries for Pataliputra to be rebuilt into a capital of a great empire once again. And before then, its rulers would be beaten and its people invaded over and over and over. The people of Pataliputra would receive their next beating from the south. And the people giving the beating were called the Satavahanas. Satavahana, that's a name to remember. These guys are going to be quite important in the history of India. The Satavahanas might have been descendants of the Andhra. The Andhra were a people on the Deccan from the time of the early Mauryans. In fact, Ashoka has an edict where he mentions them. They're a subject people of the Mauryans. But since then, the Satavahanas had made it to the big leagues. Now they called themselves Lords of the Deccan. The Deccan's that plateau uh, in the peninsula of India, surrounded on both sides east and west by mountains. So the Satavahanas were lords of the central strip of the Indian peninsula. And they've left traces all over the Deccan. As soon as they appear on the historical scene, within one generation, they leave coins and inscriptions from the east coast to the west. They appear almost out of nowhere to dominate a huge chunk of India. And what the Satavahanas seemed to love, above almost anything else, was cutting things into the mountains and hills of their plateau. There are about 800 caves that we know that were carved by the Satavahanas. Many of them are donations to Brahmins or Buddhists, but one of them is especially of interest for our purposes. If you start near modern-day Mumbai in Maharashtra and you head inland, soon you'll come to the mountains that lead up to the heights of the Deccan Plateau. And if you look, you'll find a pass leading upwards into the mountains. This was an important trade route for the Satavahanas. So they called it the Coin Steps. And in the side of the hills surrounding their pass, they carved one of their caves. It's a slot about the size and height of a suburban living room, if that helps picture it. And along the back wall was a row of statues, eight of them in high relief. They're all but gone now. There's only a, a trace of their feet remaining. But luckily for us, the labels are still there, carved above where each statue sat. And they named the royal family of the Satavahanas. Because the cave of Coin Pass was the statue house of the royal house of Satavahana. Statue houses were apparently a thing in ancient India. They appear in literature stories a little bit later, with kings being carved into the family gallery when they died. But for the Satavahanas, they were more a commemoration of the dead. They were a celebration of the living too. Perhaps they were a little bit like those painting galleries that we found the prince and his chief queen in in the last episode. A place for contemplation of the living and celebration just as much as commemoration of the dead. The first statue in the statue gallery is the founder of the Satavahanas. His name was Simuka. Simuka was nominally a servant of the last Kanva king. But he was a long way south of their effective reach, well out of their, their power. And he was left free to do pretty much whatever he wanted. And what Simuka wanted to do was to conquer. So he expanded his dynasty dramatically to control the Deccan and even parts of South India. But he wasn't content with that. Pretty soon, he decided he wasn't going to be the servant of the canvas 
not even nominally. So he turned his armies north towards Magda, and he marched to Vidisha, the new capital, and there he crushed his overlords, the Kanva dynasty. He just rolled out of, over them without any protest, really, and ended the pretense that either the Kanvas or the Shungas had any power left. So the Satavahanas were a military might, it seems, able to just roll over an ancient dynasty, or in a dynasty with ancient pretensions. Their might, in fact, was known as far away as Rome. Shortly after the birth of Christ, a Roman historian, Pliny, recorded that they had a thousand elephants, two thousand cavalry, and one hundred thousand infantry. That's quite an impressive chessboard, except for the complete lack of rooks. The might of the Satavahanas probably also reached all the way to Pataliputra, in the north of the Kanva kingdom. So the people of Pataliputra were subjected to it, but fortunately enough, the Satavahanas weren't there to stay. They were lords of the Deccan, and to the Deccan they would return. It's almost as if Simaka was just destroying the Kanva kingdom to make a point. He was nobody's servant. We know actually very little about the personal character of Simaka, but one little detail has found its way down to us. As he grew older, Simaka became more and more of a tyrant until his people finally got rid of him. He had ruled for 23 years, and though his reign had ended in some strife, he ushered in 300 years of stability and peace for his people. After Simaka, his throne was taken by his younger brother, and there are some signs that his younger brother was just a bit in awe of Big Brother, even after Simaka's death. In any case, the younger brother didn't actually do much more than to sustain what Simaka had already conquered. He moved the capital city from the east of the Deccan to the west, right next to the picture gallery, but that's about it. But the third king of the Satavahanas was perhaps the greatest. His name was Satakarni. He's carved third in the family statue gallery, next to his wife, who we'll meet in a minute. Satakani expanded the empire he had inherited, especially to the north and to the west. That's where those Indo-Greek kings were, right? The Indo-Greek kings had gone and smashed Magda, and they'd retreated back to the northwest. And we heard in an earlier podcast how the Indo-Greek kings were being pushed into India. But Satakani, the great king, pushed them back, taking territories for his emerging Satavahana empire. There are two important things to know about what sort of person Satakani was. First, Satakani was devout. His devotion mostly took the form of Brahminical orthodoxy, following the rituals. He may well have donated to Buddhist communities, and he might have had some interest in Jainism too, but Brahminical orthodoxy was his thing, and the Brahminical sacrifices are very important to him. The second important thing to know about Satakani was that he had a good head for business. And in fact, perhaps quite a lot of his expansion of the empire was wrapped up in this, because he made sure that the ports along the coasts of his empire were secure, and he focused on foreign trade. Out from the Deccan went the riches of India to foreign lands. And in, back in return, into the Deccan came a humongous amount of wealth. So Satakani, both devout and wealthy. 
And of course, in ancient India, where that sort of devotion and that sort of wealth meet, only one thing happens. Lavish sacrifices. And Satakani performed them. He performed that horse sacrifice twice, that immensely lavish thing that lasted over a year, that involved so many animals, both wild and tame, and gold and silver and all sorts. He did that twice, just like Pushramitra Shankar had done more than a hundred years before. And he performed some other big sacrifices too. And Satakani's piety, his sacrifices, were joined by good fortune. He had a great life. He had a long life. He reigned an awfully long time, 56 years. And he had a family too. When Satakani died, he had a young son to pass the kingdom onto. A very young son, in fact. He must have been the child of Satakani's autumn, so to speak, because he was so young that he was too young to take the throne when Satakani died. Luckily, Satakani was also blessed with the most precious thing of all, a fiercely competent and devoted wife. This was Queen Nayaniki, and she took charge of the kingdom for her son whilst he grew up. It was Nayaniki who had the family statue gallery carved into the walls of the pass. And along its walls, on the way to the statues at the back, she carved the story of her life. All details are there. How she was pious, how she was devoted and chaste, loyal to her husband, even after his death. The life of a widower devoted to Brahminical orthodoxy, performing the right sacrifices and performing the tough fasts. There's a great deal more to say about the Satavahanas. Their administration, their cities, their clashes with the invaders from the west. The Satavahana king who wrote erotic poems. And the Satavahana horses which drunk in three different oceans. The Satavahanas, as a kingdom, they're the, the sort of the comeback kings of ancient India. Every time you think they've finally weakened and are about to disappear from the scene, another great Satavahana king springs up and restores their fortune. Like an ancient Indian Arnold Schwarzenegger, the Satavahanas will be back. The people of Pataliputra have taken their beating from the west and then from the south. Now it's the turn of the east. The people of Kalinga. We've met Kalinga before, actually. The Kalingas were the province packed full of people, so dense that their shoulders rubbed and they couldn't sit down and the axles of their chariots ground together according to the stories, anyway. The Kalingas were the province that a young King Ashoka conquered to expand his empire. And the Kalingas were the province where Ashoka met his conscience on the battlefield, looked around, saw the devastation that war brought, and decided to never fight again. But the Mauryan Empire is long gone, disappeared, disintegrated, leaving nothing but a bitter memory in the minds of the Kalingans. And the Kalingans are about to get their own back. They're about to give a beating to Pataliputra, the old capital of their former overlords so many centuries ago. The story of Kalinga's attack on Pataliputra starts in a cave, just like the story of the Satavahana attack on Kalinga. But the Kalingan cave was a natural cave, just an indent really in the hill. It's called the Elephant Cave, and it has an inscription. And what a story the inscription tells. The inscription is the sole remaining source of our story, our history of a Kalingan empire. It narrates the events year by year of the reign of a king. 
king called, called Caravella, Lord of Kalinga. Caravella was part of a dynasty which established itself about the same time as the Satavahanas were setting up, a little further to the south. But Caravella, according to his own inscription, was really the big shot in the dynasty, the one who made it into a kingdom. Because Caravella had ambitions. He wanted to conquer the whole of India. Actually, he actually talks about India, Bharata Varsha, which is the land of Bharata, the land of India. He wanted to be conqueror, in fact, not only of India, but of the universe. And by his own account, Caravella started out quite well. After making some repairs at home, he gathered his army. And all the standard chess pieces are there, cavalry, elephants, infantry and chariots. Actually, it's a little bit unusual to hear the chariots listed the last of the four limbs, so perhaps he wasn't very keen on chariot warfare. Well, it didn't matter much, because Caravella had great success. To start with, he just avoided the big enemy to the south, the Satavahanas. Instead, he struck out west, and then north into the heartlands of Magda. He sacked the old, old capital, that hill fortress, Rajagriha, and then drove the Magdans back in humiliation before his army. He probably also sacked Pataliputra. Pretty soon after that, he was attacking the Satavahanas too, raiding the little kingdoms which owed their allegiance to the Satavahanas. And then he turned to the south proper and subjugated that too. But actually, instead of me describing it to you, let's hear it from the inscription itself. Every week we read a little bit of the primary sources, and this week we're just going to read it a little bit earlier than normal. The inscription goes something like this. Salutation to the Jinnas. Salutation to all the Siddhas. This tells us this is a Jain inscription, an inscription of a Jain king. The noble Maharaja, Mahamega Vahana, Skian of the Chetty royal dynasty, with excellent and auspicious marks and features, possessed of virtues which have been spread over the four quarters. The Lord of Kalinga, the illustrious Karavela, endowed with a body ruddy and handsome, having spent 15 years in youthful sport and in fully learning writing, painting, arithmetic, business and law, he remained crown prince for nine years. After attaining full 25 years and prosperous since infancy, destined to be as ever victorious as Vena, he was crowned Maharaja in the third Kalinga royal dynasty. In the first year, Soon after his coronation, he repaired the storm-battered gate towers, enclosing walls and buildings of the city of the Kalingas, and he caused the erection of embankments of the lake, and of tanks and cisterns, and the restoration of gardens, done at the cost of 3,500,000 to gratify his subjects. This is a guy who's not only good-looking, he's also nice. In his second year, he ignores the Satavahanas to the south, and sent westward his army, strong in cavalry, elephants, infantry and chariots. The army destroyed the city of Asika. In his third year, he, being versed in the science of music, entertained the city with performances, dancing, singing, instrumental music, and by holding festivals and assemblies. It almost sounds like he's dancing himself. In his fourth year, what was built by the past rulers of Kalinga, not damaged before, 
having been shorn of their cornets and helmets and with their umbrellas cast away, deprived of their jewels, all the Ratikas and the Bojakas were made to bow down at his feet. Some more conquering is going on. In his fifth year, what the king of the Nandas had laid out 300 years ago, he bought to the city by a canal. The wealth, the legendary wealth of the Nanda kings from so long ago has been captured by the king of the Kalingas. In his sixth year, in the course of performing the great sacrifice, the Rajasuya, he remitted all taxes and bestowed privileges worth hundreds of thousands to the various Jatis. Skip ahead a bit. In the eighth year, with a large army, he devastated Rajagriha. That was the capital, the old capital of Magda. From report of this success to save his army and carriages, the Yavana, the Greek king, retreated to Madura. The king of Kalinga gave away kappa trees, elephants, chariots with their drivers, houses, residences, rest houses, and he gave tax exemptions to Brahmanas on his triumphal return. He's coming back from having beaten the old empire, and everyone's getting a piece of it. Let's skip ahead a few years to the twelfth year where Magda comes up again. In his twelfth year, the king of Kalinga terrified the kings of Uttarapata, created fear amongst the Magdas. He made them drive their elephants into the Ganga. He made the king of Magda bow at his feet. He set up the image of the Jinnah, the Kalinga Jinnah, which had been taken away by the Nanda king, and caused to be brought home the wealth, the vast wealth of Magda, along with the keepers of the family jewels. And back home, the king of the Kalingas built excellent towers with carved interiors and settled hundreds of mansions with tax remissions. He made a marvellous stockade for driving in elephants and horses, elephants, jewels and rubies. And yes, it does say elephants twice. As well as, as, well as numerous pearls he caused to be brought here from the Pandya, the, the kingdom to the south. It goes on a bit, but you get the point. As you may well have noticed, it's really rather a difficult read. And that's partly because the inscription's weathered away in places. We're just missing lots of lines of text, and we're trying to guess what was in there. As you also may have noticed, the boasts of the inscription are rather grand. And they really are all we have to go on. There are no coins from this Kalinga kingdom, and no other inscriptions to back him up. So as you listen to that one great grand inscription, you can barely help wonder whether it's all just bluster, whether it's all just some crazy old man up in the hillside who decided to come up with a prosperous story of conquering the known world and, and carve it into the cave wall he was in. I mean, surely a whole empire of that size can't be hidden from history. Well, on balance, it seems unlikely to me. Our knowledge of the history of India in this period is just so patchy. It's got so many holes in it that you can easily hide an empire in one of those holes. But in any case, the kings of Kalinga were not going to come back. They weren't like the Satavahanas, the comeback kings of India, constantly reinventing themselves and resurrecting their fortunes. After Caravella, the Kalinga dynasty sinks just as quickly as it emerged into an absolute and total obscurity. Spare a thought, though, for the people of Pataliputra. They've endured a lot. On our chessboard, they've suffered blows from the west, from the south, 
and from the east. But someone else is coming. Someone who's going to take the chessboard, flip it over and scatter the pieces to the winds. And that is a story for the next podcast. That's it for this week. Thank you very much indeed for listening. A couple of quick notes before we go. First, I'm sorry this podcast is a day late. My bad. I'm also a little behind on the emails. If you've emailed me and I haven't got back to you, sorry. Second, it's really worth remembering what thin ice all of the stories we're talking about are on, what very slender evidence they're based on. In fact, there are very serious academics who deny not only the details of the stories we're telling, but that even the dynasties that we're talking about existed. Dynasties which we're saying lasted for hundreds of years and and had these characters in them we're trying to bring to life. Serious thinkers who are well-informed deny that they even existed. Those caveats aside, I hope you're enjoying the podcasts. And if you are, please consider donating to my wife's charity. That's the Snehal Situ Memorial Fund. Details are on the website. Thanks once again for listening. Have a great week. Take care.